Right now, I'm drinking one of my go-to drinks, a non-alcoholic Negroni made with one of my favorite NA brands, Liar Spirits. I love experimenting with making cocktails, and when I dove into this non-alcoholic beverage space, there weren't too many guides out there on how to make interesting and complex alcohol-free cocktails. And that's where Julia Bainbridge comes in. She is the author of Good Drinks, alcohol-free recipes for when you're not drinking for whatever reason, and I have to say, it is one of the most beautiful books I've seen on anything food and drinks. Get ready for a wide-ranging conversation on everything non-alcoholic cocktails and mixology. Hi, everyone. I'm Marco Salazar, and welcome to the For All Drinks podcast, your place for discovering delicious non-alcoholic beer, wine, spirits, mocktails, and more for leading a fun, healthy, and inclusive lifestyle. On today's episode, we'll be chatting with Julia and how she spent a summer driving across the U.S., going to bars, restaurants, and everything in between in pursuit of the question, can you make an outstanding non-alcoholic drink? She found the answer was an emphatic yes. Thank you so much for joining us today. Not only is Julia Bainbridge the author of Good Drinks, she's also an editor who has worked at Condé Nast Traveler, Bon Appetit, Yahoo Food, and is a James Beard Award-nominated writer whose stories have been published in Food & Wine, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, Playboy, and more. Good Drinks has an extensive pantry section, tips for sourcing ingredients, and recipes curated from bartenders around the country. In this episode, we discuss why she decided to write Good Drinks, what were some of her favorite non-alcoholic drinks she tried and favorite places she visited, how the book is structured to help the reader find their new favorite non-alcoholic drink, what are some of our favorite non-alcoholic drinks that we've recently tried, as well as insights and trends into the non-alcoholic beverage industry. So here she is, Julia Bainbridge. Hey, Julia. So great to have you on the Four All Drinks podcast. So good to be here. I'm excited to have you on the podcast because you've written extensively about this growing non-alcoholic drinks movement and just came out with a new book entitled Good Drinks. So I'm looking forward to having you share your insights with the community. So to kick it off, I'd love for you to share where did the idea for Good Drinks come from? The idea came from what was happening in the drinks world already. This is definitely a, a journalistic endeavor. I removed alcohol from my life some years ago. And that was serendipitously, let's say what, I don't know, was it about five years ago now? And living in New York City, going out to bars and restaurants with friends, looking for things to drink that wasn't water and wasn't soda. And I noticed, oh my gosh, like there is more energy being put into this category. And oh my gosh, these drinks are being given names. And oh my gosh, they are taking up real estate on menus. (laughs) Like definitely something was happening. So I wanted to capture that in this book and package together a bunch of the different delicious things I saw for um, those people who may not live in cities where that's going on yet, or just want to make some of the favorite drinks that they have had at bars and restaurants near them at home. So got in my car, traveled around the country for some months, (laughs) crisscrossing it alone in my Subaru Impreza that is now deceased. Her parts have been harvested for other vehicles somewhere in New Jersey. (laughs) And yeah, cast a really wide net, met with chefs and bartenders all over, tasted, talked with them, came back to my kitchen in Brooklyn and tested the heck out of these recipes. So hopefully they work for people at home. But that was that's the beginning. Absolutely. And how did you find all these people, especially across the country? So a few different ways. One, I'd been writing on this topic. So I knew some of the major players in big cities across the country. And then 
reached out to local food and drinks writers to get a little more intel. And then it's really about pounding the pavement and going there. I was lucky to have the opportunity to do the research the way I did because there's so much you discover when you're on the ground in a certain city, because maybe there's something, especially with this being a relatively young category of drinks and conversation, sure, that some has been written in every kind of local, let's say, eater vertical about non-alcoholic beverages when dry January comes around, but there isn't necessarily consistent coverage of that space. And, and there's just a lot that isn't yet in the press. So you really have to go and talk to the people who are interested in that space locally because they're going to know, oh, you must talk to this guy, this producer, even this tea house that maybe wouldn't necessarily be. There was a great, I think it's called High Garden Tea in Nashville that nobody had written about, but everybody locally loved. It wasn't necessarily in any mixed drinks roundups because it's a tea house. But if you go there and poke around a little bit, there is a little room in the back where they're making kombucha and making mixed drinks with their teas. And there's a lot going on and never would have known unless I went there myself. So a mix of things. And I feel like I could do a whole nother trip because you discover if you give yourself like three days in a city, you're not going to hit everything. And there's so much more going on and so much more to discover. So maybe there's a book too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Can you take us through the route of and what were some of the first cities that you ended up going to? There's a whole Excel document of all the cities and the oh, wow. different like color coding I had going on in terms of a yes, a no. Uh, there were certain qualifications, but let's see, the route started in the Southeast and then up to the Mid-Atlantic, cut down through the middle of the country, then dipped down into the Southwest up through California and hung out there for a little bit back and forth a bit from NorCal to SoCal and then cut through back through the belly of the country and into kind of New York and the Northeast. Oh, wow. This is more a personal question. Where in the Southwest did you go? I did go to New Mexico. I stopped just through Santa Fe and there was some delicious stuff there. None of it ultimately made it into the book just because for the boring reasons of, yes, you want to represent all the good stuff that's happening, but then there are only so many pages of the book to fill and you want to make sure you have a range of flavors represented and styles of drinks, et cetera, et cetera. Do you know New Mexico? Yeah, I'm originally from Taos. So when, right. I'm, th when I'm thinking about that in making my own non-alcoholic cocktails, I infuse a lot of spices and chili specifically. So there's a chili in New Mexico that only grows in New Mexico. So I was just curious about that. Were there any kind of spicy cocktails that popped out? Let's see, spicy drinks. There were, I have a shrub, a chili shrub, a trace chilies shrub from a young woman in Baltimore. And there's a lot of tahine shows up in the book. That's not necessarily spicy in terms of heat. But yeah, those are the two that come to mind. The trace chili shrub is so delicious. Ooh, I can't wait to try that. And what were some of the favorite non-alcoholic drinks that you tried? I love them all for different reasons, but I will say the cover recipe for the book is the cover for a couple reasons. One is that it's so easy. It's three different items that you open and pour together. It's a verju spritz. So you have verju, a little tonic water and soda water. Bing, bam, boom, equal parts. Put them in a you know wine glass with some ice and a lemon twist and there you go. And I just love it for the, that soft acidity of Verju. Both the tonic and the soda water are working well together in terms of adding a bit of that bitterness you get from the quinine, but then not leaning too sweet because you cut it a bit with water. I just think that's simple and delicious and it looks so elegant. I love them all for different reasons, but that, yeah. that'll be my answer today. 
What were some of the favorite places that you visited? There's lots that I did on the trip that um, wasn't necessarily research. <laughs> so I, it did turn into, look, I had this opportunity to basically live on the road for, uh, it turned into five months. There are lots of stories, I guess, and places and things on the cutting room floor <laughs> from the book project itself. But let me see, I'm looking again at this spreadsheet. I love a place in Portland, Maine, Vina's Fizz House, Johanna Corman. They started this bar. They now serve some drinks with alcohol in them, but they opened this spot as a little non-alcoholic drink space. And they sell all sorts of accoutrement and they make a bunch of like tinctures and tonics and things there that you can also buy for your home bar. But um, very cool lady. And I love... I think one of my best experiences, McCready's in Charleston, South Carolina, didn't ultimately make it into the book either, but for no other reason than, again, the boring thing of things having to shake out in a certain way to make sure that we have like a, a range of not only drink styles, but also geographic representation. But I really loved their non-alc pairing for their tasting menu, um, because it wasn't necessarily a mixed drink every time. You might get a beautiful cider that's imported from France. You might get a tea and then a mixed drink. And it was just a really beautiful journey. I felt like so cared for and every choice was so intentional. Obviously that's the case anywhere where you're intending to choose whatever it is you're serving, but there was just something special about it. And some of the pairings were so delicious that the man sitting next to me who also was there um, enjoying the tasting menu as a solo diner, but had the wine pairing when the um, Lapsang Suchang tea came around as around the bend as a pairing for a duck course. And it smelled smoky and there was this depth to it. He turned his head and asked if, in fact, could he have that for when he got to that course <laughs> instead of the wine. Wow. And even taking a step back and going back to the book, there's so there's probably, as you mentioned, so many experiences and so many different drinks and so many recipes. As a reader, how is the book structured? What would they get when they just the book? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I it's broken down by occasion or by time of day, basically. Mm -hmm. the situations in which people would be drinking, which situations in which we're socializing. I thought, okay, could I break it down in terms of drink style? Maybe I could make that happen, but there aren't really, uh, there isn't that in the non-alcoholic world quite yet. There aren't like classics and particular styles that all these drinks necessarily fit into, or could I break it down by ingredients? So each kind of base ingredient, would there be like a tea-based and coffee-based and um, I don't know, milk based, like sure, but that's not the sexiest thing in the world. <laughs> and for me, I just think I want this to be a guidebook in a number of ways. One is to a guidebook for where you can get really thoughtful non-alcoholic drinks when you're traveling. Obviously in 2020, things have changed and my hope is we're out of this soon. So we actually can get back to these bars and restaurants, but it's also meant to be a guidebook in terms of how to drink these drinks. And I think I'm um, more driven by kind of mood and occasion that sort of affects what I'm reaching for. And so that's how I, that's how I broke down uh, these drinks. As I've seen the book, there's so many different elements to it and it's really structured well and really clear to help people create context of what this whole non-alcoholic drinks industry and context is. That's what I'd actually love to transition into is that how have you seen, because I know books take a while to write, how have you seen the non-alcoholic beverage industry change since you started writing the book? 
So much. I guess one other thing I want to say about the previous question, if you don't mind, just to drive home why I structured it the way I did. I think that the book addresses something like, I don't know, perhaps obvious, but rarely talked about, which is the reasons you reach for an NA drink are just as diverse as the reasons you reach for an alcoholic drink and should be given the same attention. So I split the drinks into times of day. Sometimes you drink to relax, to connect, to let loose, to toast the end of the day. And these drinks all satisfy those diverse needs. In terms of how it's changed, uh, so much, I'm interested in hearing your answer to this question too. I feel like we're a bit stalled on on many fronts, but before that happened, this category was moving so fast that there were recipes I discovered way after the manuscript was written that I thought, oh gosh, I really want to get that in there. And so I had a little window of time after the edits were turned around to maybe take some drinks off and, and put others in. But I would say it's changing in that it's just exciting that more and more people are interested in this and are taking it seriously and giving it the same level of care and um, devoting their skill to crafting these things. Certainly, I'd say one of the biggest things is there are so many more products on the market since the time that I filed this, which is great because I, for one, like the tinkering involved. Some of the recipes in this book are quite easy to make. Some are pretty labor intensive and you have to roll up your sleeves and cook, really. And people, and sometimes even I, uh, don't want to do that. And so it's great to have these products to lean on, like really legitimately delicious products. Seed Lip, as in my mind, broke this space open and, and started this conversation in a, in a way. And since then, there have just been lots of other products that have come on and that are delicious. Some of the ones I like are really leaning into bitterness, like Ganisa and Gia. And, you know, that's the flavor that's hard to get without labor in a non-alcoholic context. If you're making drinks at home, like you may have to buy a gentian root and make a tincture or really oversteep some tea to extract that bitterness um, from it or, or whatever your method, it's going to take a little doing. So I like that there are things that I can just open, pour into a glass, mix with soda water if I want. And the same for bars, right? Like, I think when we're back in action, bartenders can really lean on the, and build out their non-alcoholic bar so that they can turn to just relying on some of those products that um, have been labored over so they don't have to labor over the making of the drink themselves, should they not want to. Absolutely. And I think you point out a couple of really interesting things about the space is that, yes, there are more products that are coming out specifically in spirits or some type of drinks that you mix in. You have something like a seed lip that is adds complexity to drinks. And I think one of the things also on the other side is then you have something like Liars that is creating the whole bar, the back bar of regular alcoholic beverages that you could put in a bar. And then you just mix with things that you're familiar with. So I think there's all these different options that are starting to emerge. And I think we're just at the beginning of it. I think the interesting thing with COVID is that for a lot of these companies, their profits actually increased during this time because unlike alcohol, you can ship it. So people have been able to purchase it by buying it online versus not necessarily the case with alcohol. So, right. and I think the others, we're just at the beginning stages in the United States. I think there's other countries that are a little bit further along. And I, I think your, and we were talking about this before the interview is that I think a book like Good Drinks comes in really as the foundation is being built for all of these non-alcoholic spirits and cocktails and the book is going to have a long lasting effect because people can go back to it for years to come. Yeah, I hope so. Thanks for saying that. And yeah, I think another thing that's changing, this was already happen, bo happening before I put the book together, but it just seems to keep 
happening in that there's more nuance around this conversation now. And by that, I don't know. Uh, I think it used to, there was the perception that if I'm not sober, I'm not interested in this category of drinks. But that's changing. A lot of people are invited to this party, so to speak, because a lot of us are checking our relationship to alcohol, whether or not it looks like, oh, I wake up and need to drink. It's We know that substance use disorder doesn't operate like that. There's a spectrum. And even if you don't necessarily can't be classified as having a substance use disorder, like I think that the popularity of dry January, I think the argument could be made that it shows just how difficult it actually is to consume alcohol, which is a highly addictive substance in a healthy way or with ease, right? Like it's not abnormal to develop some kind of drinking problem. And I think that's why dry January has become such a welcome pause. And now we have sober October in addition to dry January. And eventually there won't need to be a dedicated month. People will, like many in my circle are already doing, evaluate their relationships to alcohol in an ongoing fashion. So again, I think things like dry January lower that barrier to entry into this tracking, into this conversation with oneself. And it's great that there are there's never been a better time to be a non-drinker, even if you're a non-drinker for that month or that week or whatever. I think you are speaking to the mission of For All Drinks, where we have people on like you to help people discover delicious drinks for leading a fun, healthy, and inclusive lifestyle. So fun, meaning that there's oftentimes we equate going out and having fun with alcohol and drinking alcohol, where you, these drinks provide you an option to have fun without necessarily feeling pressure to drink alcohol, and then they're healthy. But I think it's an inclusivity piece of what you're talking about. I think people more and more are reevaluating their relationship with alcohol, and they want drinks that are complex and delicious whenever they're out in every possible social situation. And I think that the more and more brands that create these products and as well as you sharing ways in which to use these products, I think more people can go into any social situation and not feel left out or even at an event, a second class citizen where all they have is sugary drinks or just plain soda water. Totally. That's the mission of For All Drinks and that's the mission of this book. And that's why the visuals were so important to me and were really part of even the proposal before I had sold the book. It was really important to me that we were going to get to have control there and really make the book look like we wanted to because it was really important that these drinks look elegant and sexy. (laughs) I think the last book that sold really well in this category was called Pregatinis. And I'm not knocking that it did very well and obviously served a lot of people, but I think it was like time for a little bit of a refresh. Although you bring up the word healthy, these drinks are healthy in that they don't have alcohol in them, but they are not necessarily low-cal. And I, you know, some people have asked me, oh, what are some of the low-cal or sugar-free drinks in the book? And there are some that are naturally that way because I chose them for their deliciousness and that doesn't always necessarily have to have sugar in it. But I, you know, this book was not made for people who are removing alcohol from their lives in order to lose weight. <laughs> like it is very much about pleasure. And so they're not all necessarily healthy <laughs> nope. in that they have, you know, roots and things that will do good things for you. <laughs> I'm curious what you think about the term spirits being used to talk about the products that we're talking about, which are non-alcoholic spirits in that they are built to be mixed with other things. I understand why it's used. It's the easiest way to convey to a consumer what this thing is and how it's meant to be used. but 
The reason I ask is because I still haven't landed on my own answer. I think, um, you know, should we be like when it comes to wine and spirits, right? Should we be trying to make non-alcoholic versions? Like the pro these products that we're talking about have real value because bartenders and home bar bartenders can lean on them to make more interesting non-alcoholic drinks, which is what I'm all about. But should we call them spirits? Should we call it wine? They're not spirits and they're not wine. And the transformations that make those things what they are predicated on alcohol being produced. So I don't know. I just think it's it's worth thinking about. And the last thing I'll say before I hope to get your answer is it's funny that like I bristle less at non-alcoholic beer. Maybe that's because it's gotten legitimately good. As I think you had Bill from Athletic on the show, de-alcoholizing normal beer, which is a process that adversely affects flavor was the method of choice until recently when people like Bill started playing around with techniques. So I think in Bill's case, like they, they played with newly discovered yeast strains um, that produce limited amounts of alcohol. So they end up with a fully fermented beer, but that's under 0.5% ABV. In other words, there's no need to adulterate the liquid at the end of the process. So yeah, I call it non-alc beer. I have no problem with that. Why do I have a problem with the spirits and wine thing? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a legitimate question. I think in a similar conversation where we're having around sobriety and sober curiosity, all of this is coming all into play with this as well in terms of the non-alcoholic beverage space. And I would say that, and this is me still a student of it, but that the process for some, not all of what are labeled spirits, go through a distilling process, like mm -hmm, liars mm -hmm. and the complexity and the distilling process. Like when you listen to Mark Living's, the founder, go through the chemistry of what they've created, the complexity and the research and development that goes into that is probably more than some alcoholic um, brands or companies go through. Seedlip, has, it seems to be the case as well. And then you also take it Hill Street that produces it in the same way that wine does. And they've had to innovate to, to figure out how to remove the alcohol, but it still goes through that same process. But there are other brands that don't necessarily do that. I think there's some brands that aren't doing that that are getting lumped into the spirits piece, but there are definitely some from what I'm learning that actually are spirits and, and wine that it would be appropriate to label that. But I don't know if you've heard or based on your research, if you know anything different. No, no, that's interesting. I, I don't necessarily, but I, I think... What you said is is something that, that I do understand, and that's why I don't bulk at the price. Like, I understand that there's a lot of labor involved in making these things, and so I will pay 40 bucks for, you know, a bottle of whatever it is. We're still in that education phase for a lot of consumers, I think, and we still, at least in the States, have this value proposition around the thing that gives you a buzz, even though you and I know that the same amount of labor goes into these non-alcoholic products. And that is the thing that should, that is why it costs the ingredients that are well-sourced and the, you know, labor that goes into them. It's interesting. I, yeah. I think wine will be next. I know you, um, what was the winemaker you had? The Harry, Harry from Hill Street Beverage Company. Yeah. That's, that's some of the best stuff I've tasted and a couple other good ones, but it's been disappointing thus far before I discovered that, thanks to you, in fact. I do think that's going to be next and we'll see more, right? There aren't many good non-alcoholic wines out there. And maybe that's because enough people aren't trying. I wonder, it's such a commitment, right? Athletics beers are a two-week turnaround. With wine, there's a longer aging and fermentation time. There's a seasonal harvest as opposed to just getting access to water hops 
barley and yeast. So you would have to devote some tanks to, to the non-alkalines, which would ultimately sell for less than the regular ones. So I don't know, it hasn't been economically viable yet, but as this yeah. continues to grow and consumers want more of it, which we're seeing that at least in pandemic times they are, perhaps it will be. It just needs people to thoughtfully approach it rather than taking like a full strength wine and blasting it through a de-alk machine. Yeah. Um, they're doing exclusively non-alk wines, right? Yeah, you and you nailed it. I, I think that the history of the non-alcoholic beverage industry and thinking about how the craft beer industry innovated and grew so dramatically over a couple decades, but literally nothing before athletic and and, and well-being actually was really before athletic started innovating with their IPA and creating craft beer, like craft non-alcoholic beer. Right. And nothing had happened there. And, and I think there are starting to be, Hill Street, I think, is one of the innovators. One of the things they just recently announced is they actually created a version of exactly their non-alcoholic wine. And it took them a while a lot of research and development and infused um, CBD as part of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The interesting thing from a, and I think this is what's going to happen because it, people just need to taste it is that now they can be sold in dispensaries. So there's this entire other market that's now going to start drinking more non-alcoholic wine and that's going to create demand and hopefully more people will, will, will jump in. But I think you pointed it out. You're, it's a longer invest. It's a bigger investment. Terry's passion about wine. And I think that's a big driver of it. So I think we're going to need to have more wineries developing they have that infrastructure to start developing and, and releasing more non-alcoholic wine. But you're totally right. That's kind of the area that's a little bit lagging compared to the other types of drinks. Yeah. You bring up another category that that is interesting, which is CBD infused beverages. And there's just so much education that needs to happen there too. It's funny. I remember when I was doing research for for my book and some people said, oh, there's no way you're going to be able to do this without a CBD drinks chapter. And I was like, yeah, there is. That's a whole world of study that I'm not, like, this is of course, sub CBD is not an intoxicant. It is psychoactive, but not an intoxicant. And th this book was about having drinks that were substance-free. Um, so yeah, I made it without doing that. But once that was off my plate and I had a little more space to delve into the world of CBD and THC-infused beverages, I did. What I learned is <laughs> people can't expect to buy a can of Recess once and feel an effect. That's not how it works. I don't know how if you're also a student of this space and have done your research, but it's like for one, you know, edibles, which let's include the drinkables in that, the way you digest them means that you're getting less of the, let's call it medicine, if we're talking about CBD. So of course, a sublingual tincture is going to be the most effective. And then it really should be looked at like a vitamin. This needs to be part of your everyday regimen and it like builds on itself. But I learned through talking to some people that even even some of the liners and cans are like eating the CBD, essentially. And so there's new developments going on all the time in terms of trying to create things that keep that dosage that's listed on the can actually in there. <laughs> but there's a lot to learn, certainly on the consumer side, but even still in, on the maker side. Yeah, I think you you point out something really important, especially since Wellbeing just came out with a set of CBD drinks, and they're delicious. But I, in a previous company that I run, Be Social Change, we used to host events in New York, and Recess was, when they first launched, we partnered with them, and they were handing out samples, and I was able to get a number of them. And the first time I tried it, I was like, oh, it's good. And But I, I used them consistently, and that's when I was able to tell the difference um, in terms of sleep and in terms of a, a few other things relaxing at night. 
But um, it's something that you have to do on a regular basis, which could, depending on who you are, it could be, get a little bit pricey because they're, they're not totally cheap. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. If you're looking for a real therapeutic effect, like edibles are not the way, that's just something you should layer on top of a regimen you're already engaged in. But yeah, then there's the other piece of, yeah, so much is on the consumer to experiment with one. When do you start feeling it? If you ever start feeling it, because each of us has a unique endocannabinoid system that then takes to the cannabinoids that you're putting into that system differently. So some people, yes, may react strongly to a relatively small dosage, and some people may not feel anything at all. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I think that's really interesting. And I love chatting about this is that so we're talking about the consumer side. And then the other side, especially in the non-alcoholic beverage space, is the business side, which is restaurants, bars, hotels, events, weddings, and trying to make sense of all of this as well. I've spoken with people across the spectrum in that I talk about non-alcoholic beverages and they're like, what's the point? It doesn't have alcohol. And then there's others that are like, <laughs> oh my God, I wish I had that. My if where I went, I wish I could have taken it to this event or I wish I could have had it at this particular occasion. But it's educating a lot of those business owners on why it's valuable to to bring these into their business. The point of these non-alcoholic beverages that don't have any intoxicant is similar to why do you eat a delicious roast chicken with a salad and potatoes as opposed to just a bar for every meal that packs in all the nutrients that you want. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the thing, the, the beer, non-alcoholic beer makes sense. It, it, it makes sense. I think the spirit piece is, is the place where I have a really good friend who owns a bar in D.C., and is opening one in Austin, but doesn't drink. And when, just to be honest, when he first encountered C-Lip, he didn't really, it doesn't really taste particularly pleasing or people have a bad experience if they drink it straight. And then if you don't mix it properly, you may not really taste it. So his reaction was like, what's the point until we were able to, to make different drinks and kind of show what it's like. But Liars is different in that you're going to make a Negroni. There's ingredients for a Negroni it's going to take a little bit of a time for them to bring them into, into the fold. Interesting. So in wrapping up, what's some go-to drinks that you have on a regular basis, especially now in quarantine? Again, I have that Verjou and tonic so much. <laughs> that I think is my go-to from the book. And then I swear I'm not paid by them. I talk about them so much, but Gia has become my favorite. So that's I love G H I A. It's so great. It's not sweet. It's bitter. It's like, really a perfect aperitif. I like to have it straight even sometimes because I really like bitterness, but or like over a little bit of ice, but also a great spritz. I haven't really played with some of the more complex recipes that they have. When you buy a bottle, you get a little book of recipes. And um, one of the women who works at King Restaurant in New York helps them develop those recipes. So yeah, those are my go-tos. And Athletic, I really love that. What is it? The Run Wild IPA. So I have a bunch of those in my fridge that's actually getting low. I'm going to need to reorder, but those are my go-tos. Yeah, I love Gia. Melanie's great. I think that they've done a really good job of creating a very tasty and bold beverage. I'm, I'm a bitter person as well. So you can mm -hmm. drink by itself or mix it with a number of other things. The other brand that I would suggest if you haven't tried is the Hella Cocktail Company. Yes. Yeah, I they're, do know them. Their bitters I drink pretty regularly. They're distinct compared to regular bitters that have been used for a very long time. Nice. Where do you see the non-alcoholic beverage industry changing in the next few years? I don't know exactly. I think in terms of the mixed drinks, 
I do think like the next phase will be similar to what happened with vegetarian dishes. And maybe we're already there, but no, it's like the dishes served in non vegetarian restaurants have evolved from platters comprised of whatever sides went with the meat entrees and then to mimicking meat and then finally to being treated as their own things. And I think people will really lean into the idea of these drinks being non-alcoholic and maybe take them out of the context of relating them to classic cocktails. I think like they'll take more care with sourcing ingredients. They'll really approach the drink making from a culinary standpoint and working to understand what transformations like fermentation can do. And I, I think I imagine too, that some forward thinking bartenders might develop non-out classics or some kind of templates for other bars and restaurants, ones that might not have the resources to experiment themselves to follow. That's what I see happening. What about you? I, I think one of the things that's going to be interesting over the next uh, couple of years is that there's going to be more drinks entering the space, which is going to be great for everybody, both in terms of see, I'm seeing a lot of beer companies that are emerging, but a lot of spirit companies that are popping up in the United States, which is really great. I think there's a number of them in Canada that now are going to start importing more into the, U, into the US. And there's so many others that are in the UK and Australia. And yeah. I think hopefully will be a couple businesses that start importing those on a regular basis that's really going to grow the market. I see that happening, which is going to be great. I think it's, there's going to be an opportunity for industries that are post-pandemic event-based industries mm-hmm. that will have to have those on a, on a regular basis. I think there's also this opportunity for colleges to be able to start carrying them as well. So I, I think we're just at the beginning stages of a lot of really fun and exciting things happening in this. You know, the good host should be thinking about dietary restrictions, sure, but like really should be thinking about that in the drink space too. I think the good host would have options that exactly what you said, that were thought about just as much for people who don't drink. And maybe you're just not drinking for that round. But why you're drinking doesn't matter. It should just be present and there for you too. Absolutely. So so thank you so much for joining us, Julia. And where could people find out more about you and the book? Thank you for having me. I'm Julia Bainbridge everywhere. So my website that has a bunch of clips of my recent work is juliabainbridge.com. And I'm Julia Bainbridge on both Twitter and Instagram. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today, and I hope you check out Good Drinks by Julia Brainbridge. She has amazing recipes in the book, and hopefully you start experimenting with your own non-alcoholic cocktails. If you're subscribed to the show, thanks for being part of the For All Drinks community. I'd be super grateful if you can take a moment to leave me a rating if you enjoyed this episode and the podcast. If you're not a subscriber yet, be sure to subscribe to this and all the other episodes of the podcast to start discovering more delicious non-alcoholic drinks. Lastly, visit foralldrinks.com for show notes to this episode and sign up for our newsletter to get the latest non-alcoholic beverage news, special giveaways, discounts, and more. Here's to drinking healthy, inclusively, and different. See you all next week.